when we were in Moldova, um, one of the pastors that was there with me, just in a situation, basically said to me, he says, Mark, you're a pessimist. And I was kind of surprised. It kind of came up like this. Uh, some of, some, a couple of people, or a few of us, were in this meeting that uh, myself and another pastor had to go and do a pastor's training conference uh, in, a, in a town about 45 minutes from the town we were staying in. We worked all day, and then we got on a bus, and we drove over there. And, and myself, and we were, we'd been doing this teaching, and then they said, let's do a question and answer time. So myself and another pastor stood up there, and, and he was at the podium, and I was standing right here. And a question was asked saying, what's going on in the Church of America? which I thought was kind of an interesting question. And uh, I didn't you know, really know why they wanted to know, but the pastor was standing at the microphone. He said, um, and he wasn't trying to be critical, and I don't think he even thought about what he said before he said it. He said, well, i tell you what, I'll tell you the positive, and I think Pastor Mark will tell you the negative. And I was kind of like a little taken back by that, and I thought, well, what's that all about? And so... T- wanting to do what he said to do. He told the positive, and he told about, you know, good things that are happening in churches, how some churches are growing, and, and uh, he talked about things like all the missions trips that were going on in America, that really thousands of churches, right, you know, in the summer send out teams all around the world, and we do things like we did, going and, and working at a church overseas and, and buy, b- raising money to buy their material so they can fulfill the ministries that God is, is laying on their, on their heart. Well, then I got up there and I thought, well, I better do what he wanted me to do. And, uh, and, and they, but I was trying to be honest. And they said, what's the condition of the church in America? And I told them what I believe to be the honest condition of the church as a whole. I'm not talking about Portview. I'm talking about the church as a whole in, a, in America. And I told them what I believe is a sad reality that I see going on. That the church in America, uh, I, can, I can look at it and say, oh, there's great things happening because I have a very narrow view and I look just at our church. But if I step back and look at the numbers... And there's all kinds of people who calculate the numbers. Now, if I look at the numbers, what I find about the church in America is that it's shrinking. What I find about the church in America is that there's not one county. Now think, Wisconsin has 72 counties. And every state in America has counties except for Louisiana. I lived in Louisiana. They have parishes. But they're still broke down the same way. Kind of every state's broken into a bunch of little zones. Counties or parishes. U.S. Census says, for, for sure the last two censuses over 20 years that not one county in America has more people simply going to church than they did the 10 years prior. So at least for the last 20 years, there's not one county in America who has more people going to church, and therefore we can equate that they're you know, believers, um, than they did 20 years ago. And I talked about the moral decline that I see in America. And it is, you know, I'm not that old, but I'm feeling like an old codger because I look around and I go, when I was a kid... You know, it wasn't like that. You know, and my kid's like, Dad, you know, you really are that old. Um, but I look at the moral decline, and that says to me that, that really our, maybe as a whole, our churches aren't having the incredible impact. And, and I was saying that when I told him, I said, you want to know what America's like? I said, America is you guys a couple hundred years ago. We were in Europe. And I said, the, the heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity was right there hundreds of years ago in Europe. And see, we were in Moldova, but just south of Moldova is Turkey. And we, when we flew, we flew from Chicago to Istanbul, Turkey. And then we did a little short plane flight from Istanbul to Chisinau, Moldova. Well, Istanbul, Turkey, was where the seven churches in Revelation are in, in Turkey. Turkey was where the Apostle Paul ministered. And when we flew in, I asked people, I said to all kinds of people, what did you notice when you flew into Turkey? Because I've lived overseas and I've, my eyes have just learned to see certain things when I come in and fly into an airport, and, and 
they said, well, what do you mean? I said, did you notice there wasn't one church steeple with a cross on it? But there were the, the, the pillars, the minuets, all over Istanbul, everywhere you looked of the, Jew, of the, of the mosques for Islam. And five times a day, call called people to prayer. And the reality is, that was the headquarters of Christianity. When the Spirit of the Lord directed the Apostle Paul, the, the, um, the John to write the book of Revelation and talk to the seven churches, he was talking to seven churches in Turkey. And now 2,000 years later, um, the church is almost non-existent in Turkey. And they said, so what's America like? And I said, unfortunately, I think America is going down the same path that Europe is going down. That if, if something doesn't change, we'll, we'll walk the same path. And someday there will be mosques replacing, or whatever, replacing church steeples. And somebody could say, well, you know, you are a pessimist. Well, I don't think that's being pessimistic. I think that's, that's being honest. And, and a little later, after that evening, I was kind of, kind of taken back being called a pessimist. And uh, we had another conversation with the, I, with the same guy. And um, we were discussing the ministry of Jeremiah the prophet. And he's the one who brought it up, and he was looking at some sermon stuff that he was preparing to do, and he's talking about Jeremiah, and he made the comment, he said, this guy could suck the life out of a room. And I'm thinking, yeah, Jeremiah, if you're familiar with the scriptures, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And he, but he, he was a weeping prophet for a reason. He was a weeping prophet because God told him, here's your job. You're going to preach and preach and preach that, that I'm going to judge these people because of their sin, and guess what? They're not going to listen to you. And you're going you're gonna to testify to all the people that I'm going to judge them for their sin, and they're not going to listen to you. At the end, I'm going to judge them for their sin. And at the same time that, that Jeremiah was preaching, there were all these other prophets, and they were preaching peace and prosperity. And they're saying, oh no, Jeremiah is wrong. It's going to be wonderful. The greatest days are ahead. And you know what the people would have said about Jeremiah? They'd have said, Jeremiah, you're a pessimist. They said, Jeremiah, you're a pessimist. We want to talk about good things, and you're saying, you're saying that bad things are happening, bad things are, are coming. You know, but in that conversation about Jeremiah, I stood there, I almost put my mouth open, and I finally had to point out a fact. I said, but do you understand that the only one who was right was Jeremiah? <laughs> we have history. We can read it. Do you understand that they may have called him a pessimist, but the only one that was right was Jeremiah? That Jeremiah had a word from God. And Jeremiah looked at what was going on, God, you know, the, the prophetic word, however, however that prophetic word happens, whether God simply gives you a keen insight into what's happening, or God literally speaks a word into your heart and says, this is my message, it's a prophetic, a prophetic viewpoint. And in his prophetic viewpoint, he wasn't being a pessimist, he was the only one that was right. He was a realist. He was being honest. And you know, when, when all the other people were being positive, and he was the pessimist of the crowd, when it came to the end, he was the only one who was right, and all the other people were wrong. Now, people loved to be around them, and they probably didn't like to be around Jeremiah, because, as this guy said, he could suck the life out of a room. Um, and I think if you could take Jeremiah today, if we, could, if we could sit with him today, God could transport us up to heaven, and we could do a, a, a Skype call with Jeremiah, and we'd say, Jeremiah... Um, couldn't you just be a little more positive? Couldn't you just spin it a bit and may it be a little more positive? I think that what he would say is that I'd love to be more positive. I think he would say I would love to do that, but that he couldn't do it because truth is truth. And ignoring the truth or spinning the truth won't make it any less true. It might make people feel good. It might even attract the crowd. 
But ignoring the truth or spinning the truth doesn't make the truth any less true. I think we've, we've just seen that in, in, in Wisconsin without trying to be overly political. But we just saw that. You could ignore the state's deficit and pretend it doesn't exist. Or you could do something about the state's deficit and, and fix it. One person could say, well, it doesn't exist or it's not a big deal. The other person could say, yes, it doesn't. And as a nation, our federal government, you can look at that and say, we can say, peace and prosperity, everything's going to get good. Or you can look at it and say, holy cow, we got a train wreck coming. Well, that's what Jeremiah did spiritually. He looked at it and said, holy cow. And I'm not sure if he said holy cow, but something like that. Holy cow, we got a train wreck coming. And you may be thinking, Mark, why are you talking about this today? Are you just venting? Because some guy called you a pessimist? You know? Uh, why are you spending your time talking about this? There's a reason. The reason I bring this up today is because the text we're going to look at in a few minutes isn't very positive. And the heart of what came down in some of our conversations was, oh, you can't preach through books of the Bible anymore. Because if you preach through books of the Bible, it's just not all positive. You're forced to deal with the negative. So no one, so basically we said this, nobody preaches through books of the Bible anymore. I said, well, for 2,000 years they had been doing it. But now suddenly we have a new revelation and we're smarter. I'm not saying the only way to do church is to preach through books of the Bible. There's been whole, whole years and years and years I haven't done that. And sometimes I do. When I feel God leads me to. But it came down to saying, you can't do that anymore. Because if you do that, you can't just be positive all the time. You're going, to come, you're going to come to texts like we're going to look at it in a few minutes that aren't very positive. And friends, the trend in the American church today is basically this, to speak no negative. If you want to see the overriding, what it could say above every door is speak no negative. And they would say the stated goal of the reason they get together is to encourage people. I like encouraging people. And to uplift people. I like to uplift people. But I think the real main goal is to entertain people. I really believe that. The main goal is to entertain people and to give nice people, nice principles for living nice lives. But friend, never go negative and never tell the truth because people don't want to really hear that. Don't mention sin. Don't mention hell. Don't mention self-sacrifice. Don't mention suffering because people get uncomfortable with these even though they can be the truth. And they would say this in all the books. And uncomfortable people just might stop coming to your church, and if they start stop coming to your church, they might stop putting money in your offering plate. And so, for Pete's sake, don't go negative, because that may affect the bottom line. Well, I want you to understand something today, and I really want you to understand this. I really believe the Lord wants me to communicate this point to us at Portview. That there is a very real war going on for the heart of the church in our nation. We're Europe just a few generations back, behind. There is a war going on for the heart of the church and it struck me so much as I flew into Istanbul, Turkey and I looked at the fact that there is no Christian witness. 97% Muslim, 3% other, and out of that 3%, almost zero Christians. We're sending a, WN, a Wisconsin, Northern Michigan family right now, a family that Suzanne and I did the wedding for in Marquette. They're missionaries going out right now, Mike and Nikki Murray, going to Istanbul. They just got released. They're going to Istanbul. Family couple from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Going there, and they've got to go there, and they've got to hide who they are as Christians. Because 
Christianity doesn't exist in a place where Christianity was all that existed a while ago. I want you to understand today, and I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, there is a war going on for the heart of Jesus' church. But it's nothing new. In fact, it's what our text today is really all about. The text we're going to look at in just a moment. But there's a war going on for the heart of the church, and the war is over this. Will we really preach the gospel of Jesus Christ honestly? And live out biblical Christianity honestly? In all of its good and bad? In all of its glory and self-sacrificing struggles. And if you don't read the scriptures and see self-sacrifice. Matter of fact, it's what I said in the conversation about Jeremiah. I told the pastor, I said, I could agree with you except I keep making one huge error. And he said, what? I said, I keep reading the Bible. And you're like, ah, very funny. <laughs> I said, no, I keep reading the Bible and I can't, I can't, I see it different. If I only read books about by human authors, that would be different. But if you read the Bible... You see that it looks a little different, that, that, that this war is over. Will we really preach the gospel honestly and live biblical Christianity? Or will we change the gospel to accommodate people's dislike for the truth that hurts and requires change? Because that's the deal. When you come to Jesus, you die. When you come to Jesus, you die. And you, get, and you become different. But here's the deal. He says, if you die, then you really live. It's not death to be mean, it's death to give you the best. Death to give you real life. And I really see the church is, is becoming a place where we're living on just human effort. And the church in America is becoming a place where there's not a whole lot of God in it. You know, the question is, will the church confront the truth or ignore the truth about itself? Will we be like the passengers on the Titanic? And I, I've read this to be true, and I know this kind of ruined it for me when I watched the movie Titanic years ago because what I read about it and what the movie portrayed were different because I had read that on the Titanic, the orchestra continued to play. And I don't know if that's in the movie or not, but the orchestra continued to play, and the people just did not believe that the unsinkable Titanic could ever sink. And even though it was sinking, they just kept on playing, and the people kept on dancing. Because they said, you don't get it. This is the unsinkable Titanic. And I think we sit in the church today and we go, well, you don't get it, Mark. This is the unsinkable church of Jesus Christ. It can't be sunk. But I sat in Istanbul and I sat in the airport and I looked out the windows and all I saw were, were, were Muslim mosques. And I thought, oh, the ship can sink. The ship can sink. So the question is, will the church confront the truth or ignore the truth about itself? Or will we face the truth and cry out to God for help? You see, friends, facing the truth isn't being pessimistic. It's being honest. Facing the truth is being honest. And I think the truth about the state of the church in America is that this, that, and this is what the text is going to talk about today, that we look good. We have big, beautiful buildings, and we have trained staff and pastors, better trained than anywhere in the world. I was so taken back by the fact that they carted me around that entire country and said, okay, you teach us. And I'm going, why do you want me to teach you? You're doing it. You know, but we have, the, we have the best trained. Almost all the pastors I dealt with have never had one day of training in their life. Most of them don't even have a Bible. Or we, some of God has got them Bibles, but a lot of them can't even read the Bibles hardly because of their lack of education. We have well-trained staff and pastors. We have great programs doing wonderful things, yet I think we lack spiritual power and authority. And we're, we look at the reality of the numbers. We're losing our kids. We have incredibly low standards of morality, even inside the walls of the church. I never believe there would be a day that we'd ordain 
homosexuals in the church and that you could live any way you want and just sit in church and never blush. Scripture talks about a people when they get to a place where they don't blush because of sin. I think we're living in that day. You don't blush because of sin. Very incredibly low standards of morality. I think incredibly weak commitments to the work of God. Everything else comes first. And for the most part, numbers say we're selfish. You know we spend more money on dog food in America than we do on world missions every year. We spend more money on FIDO than we do lost people. Even in our, in our inner cities or in our world, you say, man, you're a downer. <laughs> you are a pessimistic guy, Pastor Mark. That sounds pretty pessimistic. Well, I wish I could just pretend that it isn't true. I could be like the prophets around Jeremiah and just pretend that it isn't true in, in Jeremiah's time and say, peace and prosperity, everything is good. But I think the numbers say that the appraisal that I've just spelled out for the church is really honest. It's just, it's just the numbers. It's honest. But here's what I want you to hear today. If I stood here all day and I told you how rotten it is, you'd say, man, I'm going to church next Sunday. I've got to go to work on Monday morning. You know, and now this guy sucked the life out of me on, on Sunday. Friends, here's the deal. It doesn't need to be, what I described does not need to be a description of you. It doesn't need to be a description of me. It doesn't need to be a description of Portview Church. It doesn't need to be a description of the Assemblies of God. We can live right in a wrong world. We can live different than the world around us. And friends, this is why I'm pointing it out today, because the Scripture is going to point it out. We can live different than the church world around us. And we can live different than a lot of the churches down the street or around the block, because the, the temptation is, is to go the way of the prophets of Jeremiah's time and just talk about everything being great and acting. And everybody's drawn to that. They love it. But it's not the truth. But we can be different. We can live right in a wrong world. And you know why I know we can do that? Because our God is big enough. We don't have to accommodate the things of the world. We don't have to go that direction. We, we know that our God is big enough and we can live right in the wrong world, and we can stand by God's standards, and if we do that, God's going to bless us. We do not have to follow the path that much of the church world is walking on. Because friends, guess what? I'm not pessimistic at all. I'm incredibly optimistic about this church. I'm incredibly optimistic about this church and its future. Because we have been and will, be, will continue to be honest and to walk before God, we will allow God to challenge us and correct us when we need it so that we won't be dragged down with those around us who refuse to deal with reality. Because I know that's the kind of people you want to be and the kind of person I want to be. We want to be honest in our walk with God. But we've got to have our eyes open to know what's going on around us because it's subtle and it can suck us in. So friends, let's honestly look at this section of Scripture today that isn't very positive but can challenge us towards a greater authenticity in our life and worship with the Lord. So grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11, starting in verse 11. Starting in the very last verse of the preceding section, and, and we'll explain that in a minute why we're doing that, because there's a timeline here. Understand what's going to happen is Jesus goes to Jerusalem to the temple, and then he leaves for the night, and then he comes back, and it's all part of a plan. So you've got to understand the whole, the whole picture here. Verse 11, chapter 11 says this, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. 
And after looking around at everything, so he's observing what's going on in the temple, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He went there to sleep. On the next day, so they get up in the morning, on the next day, they went, they had left for Bethany. Left Bethany, heading back to Jerusalem. They left Bethany, and he became hungry. Chapter verse 13. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it and found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, he said to it, May no one again ever eat fruit from you. And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple where he had been the night before. And he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturn the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, it is, is it not written? My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den." the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, he would, go, he would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now let's stop there. Let's understand what's going on here. This event happened one week before Jesus was going to be crucified. Um, he had just had his triumphal entry. And, and if you remember back at Easter time and Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, when we celebrate that, we jumped ahead in the Gospel of Mark to, this, to the section just before this. And we said, okay, we're going to jump ahead in Mark, and we're going to look at this, and then later we'll skip over it. Well, the verses we skipped over, preceding chapter 11, and verse, uh, ver, chapter 11, verse 11, were the story of the triumphal entry. Where if you remember what that is, it's when Jesus came into town riding on a donkey in, in prophetic form, uh, riding in as a king, and the people received him as king. And remember what they shouted? Hosanna. Hosanna is him who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they put their palm branches in the ground and their coats in the ground. And he rode into king um, in triumph as, as king into, into uh, Jerusalem. And after entering the city, after his triumphal entry, verse 11 says this, it says he went into the temple and he looked around at everything. He looked around what was going on in the temple and then he left. And he had a plan. And that next day, he gets up from Bethany, going to head back to the temple that he just looked at the night before. And he knew what he was going to do. Based on what he saw the night before, he left Bethany and he headed back to Jerusalem, waiting to go to the temple. But on his way back to Jerusalem, to the temple that he'd been in the night before, he did something that was meant to be a visual parable to Israel. And a visual parable to every one of us that's 2,000 years later who make up his church. He saw a fig tree. And he approached the fig tree that was all, it says this, it says it was in full leaf. In other words, it was all green and full leaves. The leaves were all developed. It was a beautiful, healthy, green, leafed out tree. And it looked good. And it was green. And it was healthy. And he looked at it for figs. And there was no figs. And he cursed it for having no fruit. Now, understand something. You may have read that before and said, Jesus is pretty petty. Why is he cursing a tree that doesn't have fruit when it's not supposed to have fruit? Understand, it had nothing to do with fruit. It has nothing to do with him being, with him being hungry. The text says that it wasn't the season for figs yet. Jesus knew that. 
His cursing the tree had nothing to do with him being hungry. Nothing, nothing to do with him being frustrated that a tree had no figs. He knew it wouldn't have, shouldn't have trigs, figs. No, rather, he was showing them a visible illustration of what he was going to do and reveal about the spiritual condition of the state of worship and the spiritual life of Israel when he went back into the temple that day. He was doing a prophetic action on the way to going back to the temple. He had seen the night before what he saw and he didn't like it. So he does a prophetic action, this tree he does something with, to illustrate what he's going to talk about and do once he gets into the temple. And he was basically saying this, just because that tree, or because the nation of Israel, or you or I, Just because we look good, because our leaves are large and green, we look nice and we're healthy and and, and lush, it does not mean that we are bearing fruit that is pleasing to God. And friends, this is a valuable image for us in our very large, nice, comfortable American churches today. I believe Jesus is saying to you and to me that we can look good on the outside. Great programs, nice buildings, full bank accounts, but we can be displeasing to God. That's the message he was saying before he spoke the message. And that's what he showed he meant when he went back into the temple. Grab your Bibles, look back at verses 15 to 17. For all those who think, oh Jesus, your picture of Jesus is the guy holding lambs. You know, he's just always petting a lamb. Always kind, sweet, nice. Uh... Here's the, here's the other side of Jesus. And it's not a bad side, it's the real side. And then he came to Jerusalem. And he entered a temple. And he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Friends, Jesus approaches the temple that day. He saw its, its, its marble walls and the, the golden capitals on top of the, the pillars that were just beautiful. And he saw these incredibly huge crowds coming up the steps to the court of the Gentiles because that's where this would have taken place, in the court of the Gentiles, that area that was this walled and, and marble paved and it's on the south side of the temple and it's about three, three football fields long and two and a half football fields wide, this, this huge area that the Jewish historian Josephus said in AD 65 that so many people came to worship at the temple. He estimated 2.7 million people would come to worship. And matter of fact, said that over 255,000 lambs would have been slain at that Passover feast. 255,000. It was this pandemonium. It was this area of all these millions of people coming for one purpose, to come to the temple. And that area, that, that, that court of the Gentiles, had been filled with, uh, with money changers, Jesus said, because the people had to come in from all over and they had to come exchange their foreign money and pay their temple taxes. Scripture said every male over 20 had to pay a half a shekel for a, for, to, to, as a worshiper coming to the temple. And the area was filled with merchants selling livestock, and selling fowl, and selling wine, and selling salt, all the things they needed to make the sacrifices that God demanded that they, meet it, that they needed. And they set it up right there in the area of the, of the temple, right in the court of the Gentiles. And friends, the temple was transformed into this open-air market. And the chief priests and the scribes, they loved it. You know why they loved it? Because they were profiting and flourishing. And everybody around could say, my goodness, look at the state of the church. 
Look at the church of Jerusalem. Look how wonderful it is. Look how lush and green it is. Look how prosper it is. Look how successful. They're flourishing like a green tree. But Jesus walks in. He'd been there the night before and he walks in that day knowing what he's going to do and he looks at all of it and he sees how they have ripped the very heart out of what God intended the worship of the temple to be. They had ripped the very heart of it. They looked good on the outside, but they had ripped the very heart out of what the, the temple was meant to be. The temple was supposed to be a holy place set apart to God. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer. The temple was supposed to be a place where you could meet with God. It was supposed to be a place that was a constant reminder of the presence of the Lord. And, and maybe most tragically, the court of the Gentiles, where they had set all this up, was meant to be a place where non-Jews could seek and find the one true God, the God of the Jews. Because God had raised up, remember why God started chose Abraham and raised up a nation? To show the whole world what it's really like to serve Him. He chose a nation to say, I'm going to reveal myself through this nation to the world, so that there will be a light unto the world. And people will see what God is doing in their life and be drawn. And this was the very place where they were supposed to be able to come and seek and find that one true God. And they had turned it into a Walmart. It's exactly what they had done. They had turned it into a super Walmart. You could buy everything you needed right there in the temple. So what's Jesus do? He begins to drive out the people who were buying and selling. It doesn't say he did it three years earlier. He had cleansed the temple a different time. They said he made a whip that time. And he began to whip people and drive them out. They didn't get the point three years earlier. He comes and does it again. Now at the end of his ministry, it doesn't say he does a whip, but he says that, that he drives them all out, the people who are buying and selling. And he begins to take their tables. I was going to do this for effect, but I thought I wouldn't. And flip their tables over. I thought well, that might be a little too dramatic. But that's what, that's what he did. Their table's all covered in money. People get a little serious about their money. And he comes up and just throws their tables. And all their money goes flying. And he's, he's, he's getting all the people out. And I'm sure the doves are flying. And the, and the sheep are getting away. And people are ticked. And he says this. It is written. It doesn't say in the text, but it doesn't say he shouted. But I think he shouted it. Because I have a feeling his, his emotions were up a little bit. Flipping over. You don't just walk up and flip tables over. You know, kick people out the door. When they're making money, they fight it. You go try to kick the teller, you go try to kick the Walmart greeter out of the door. They'll fight you a little bit, right? And I think he shouted and he says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. What happened that day, friends? Jesus looked beneath the exterior to see the heart. And he saw the truth. And like the fig tree between Bethany and Jerusalem, he understood they looked good. They looked prosperous. They looked successful. But they were dead at the core. They were dead at the root. And that's the point that the disciples got when they saw that cursed fig tree the next day. They pointed out to Jesus. They said, wait a minute, Jesus. The tree that you cursed has died, and it says very intentionally, it has withered from the roots up. It's not the result of the drought that we've had around here. It died from, the, from dead roots. It died from the roots up. It withered from the roots up. That's the point the disciples got when they saw that cursed fig tree that next morning. Withered from the roots up. It showed that, that you can look good on the outside, but you can be dead at the core. And it's really what was, re- it was it's the reality that was revealed that it was sick on the inside 
and there's something sick on the inside, eventually it will be revealed on the outside. So what's this speak to us? The Church of America, Port Washington, your own home. I believe it's a warning. One that the church world would say, don't go negative, man. Don't be pessimistic. Which I think God wants us to be honest. It's a warning. One which I think that the churches of our nation need to hear and that we need to hear. And it's this, that we can look good on the outside for a while. But if you're not bearing fruit that pleases God, you will wither and you will die. And eventually he comes over and he flips over your tables and he drives you out of his presence. Friends, you know what God's plan is for his people? You know what God's plan is for you? It's for you to flourish. It's for you to thrive. It's for you to be a green tree full of figs. Not a green tree looking nice but not having any fruit. And friends, we flourish when our passion is to go hard after God. When our house, this house, the Bible says you're now the temple. Now there's not a temple anymore. We make a mistake. We think that this has become the temple. You know why we say that? Why this has become the temple? Because it takes responsibility off of you and me. Scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say this is the temple. It says that is the temple. And that is the temple. And that is the temple. That this is the house of God. And we flourish when our passion is to go hard after God as a place of prayer in this temple. We flourish when our relationship with God is open to correction and reproof. That's all he was trying to do for those people. Say, listen, God had a plan and you're missing the plan. This is supposed to be a place of prayer. You've turned it into Walmart. Stop making Walmart out of it. Get back to the business. That's what he's trying to get them to do. We flourish when we're, when we're open to correction. Guess what? Anybody who's never made a mistake, raise their hand. I said, never made a mistake. And it's, I talked to you about anybody who's never made a mistake. Right? No, you just all made a mistake. Okay. I, you thought I said ever instead of never. Okay, so I made a mistake. So let's say, everybody who's ever made a mistake, raise your hand. You know what? Every one of us needs to be open to the correction of God. Because every single one of us needs correction and reproof. We flourish when, we, when we're open to the reproof of God. We flourish. If they would have responded to Jesus' correction and fallen on their faces and repented and said, Oh, Jesus, we're so sorry. You're right. I believe they would have been the biggest revival in the history of the world would have taken place. Jesus had just offered himself as their king. They had received him hours, within 24 hours earlier, they had received him as king. I think there would have been the greatest revival in the history of the world, but they didn't do it. You know why? Because it wouldn't have looked good and would have cost them money. And that's why they didn't do it. But we flourish when we're open to the correction and reproof of God. We flourish when we stand opposed to the gutting of the gospel that is taking place all over. And we won't compromise to please the crowd or to get the crowd. Understand that, friends. We won't hear. We will not compromise to appease the crowd or to get the crowd. And that's the thing. You see, I roll in circles all over the place with other guys who do my job. And that's what's really happening. A country that's just kind of getting cold towards God. You know what pastors are doing all over the place? It's not newsflash to you. We go, what we're doing is not working anymore. We've got to do something different. You know what we've got to do? Just appease the crowd. Just give them what they want. Entertain them. If you entertain them, 
They'll come in, and at least we look like we're still a leafy tree. Friends, we'll never do that. We will never compromise the gospel to appease the crowd or to get the crowd. Now that may require sounding negative sometimes. But it's not negative. It's honest. It's an honest passion to flourish in the presence of God and to thrive for the long haul for our sake, for our kids' sake, and for our grandkids' sake. Because you know what? I plan on having grandchildren someday. And you know what? I don't want them to grow up in a place like Istanbul, Turkey, where the church is gone and mosques fill the land. And so if this is the only church that will be there for my grandkids, I want this to be the only church. Because we're not going to compromise. Because God doesn't want us to. Because we're in this for the long haul, for our kids and our grandkids. Not just for some short blip on the human radar screen of praise and acceptance. That you write your numbers down and it says, Oh, wow, you are prosperous. Come speak at my conference. No. What can we take from today? You know what you take from today? You know what I want to take from today? We invite the Spirit of the Lord to survey our temples. This temple. And we ask Him to flip over our tables or drive out anything that's displeasing or destructive to Him. We say, God, you're offering it. I want it. Take out anything that doesn't belong. Remove anything that's wrong. God, any priority I have that's wrong, rip it out of my heart. I want to live for you today. Because, friends, you know what? He loves you so much that He will do that for you. He loves you that much. That He wants to confront the things that don't belong so that you can thrive. He wants to pull the weeds out. He wants to take, remove the poison. So that when you flourish like a tree, and the Bible says that's a, a picture of Israel, was a fig tree over and over through Scripture. A fig tree that flourished, but not a fig tree without figs. It's like a cornfield if they didn't have any cobs of corn on it. What good would it be? God wants us to be not only lush and beautiful, but full of fruit. Full of the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Scripture says against those there's no law. Because when you live God's way, you flourish. So you know what you take from today? You live a life of inviting the Spirit of the Lord to survey your temple every day. And to say, God, today, if it doesn't belong, flip it over. Cast it out. Help me to walk in purity and honesty and openness before you. And God, in church, this needs to be your prayer for me. I hope you pray for me. This needs to be your prayer for our pastoral staff. This needs to be your prayer for yourselves. You say, God, help us to be wise enough to not subtly allow ourselves to walk down a path that leads in the end, maybe short-term blip, but leads in the end to the church being gone and a mosque being in its place. Let's be the exception and not the rule. Let's see Jesus thrive in our hearts and our lives, thrive in our homes. And you know what? And there's nothing the devil can do about that. He can't win. The devil doesn't win because he's stronger. He wins because we give in. And so let's say, you know what? As for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord. We can do that, can't we? Stand with me this morning. As we close in prayer, I'm just going to invite you to either today, in these closing moments, or sometime this afternoon, just invite the Lord to examine your life.
Not me to examine your life. I'm not your judge. The Lord to. And then just in his love, if he points things out, give them up. As I went through this this week, you know what I, what I found? Suzanne and I talked about it. I said, there's still some people I got some issues with. I got to forgive. I thought I had. I hadn't. I haven't. I'm trying to. The Lord's trying to flip that table over in my heart. You got them too. People who have hurt you. Things you know the Lord is telling you to do, but you're refusing to do. You're, using, you're logically saying, yeah, but. You're, you're, you're rationalizing, even though the word of the Lord is very clear on what you should do. Don't fight the Lord. You don't win. He flips over the table and he drives you out. He always wins. So Heavenly Father, you win not because you're mean or vindictive. You win because you're God. And you want what's absolutely best for your creation. You want what's best for me. You want what's best for each individual in this church. You want us to thrive. You want us to be full of the fruit of the Spirit. You want us to be empowered by your presence. You want us to live in the joy of the Lord. And Lord, I know all of those things only come when we allow you to come in and examine the temple. And when you start tossing things aside, that instead of fighting back, we say, oh wow, I didn't get it. I'm sorry. Help me to change. Help me to grow. And God, help us to realize no matter if we've been walking with you for a week or for 50 years, there's never a day we need to stop growing. Because as long as we're alive, that sin nature is still there. And we need to constantly bring it under the submission to your spirit. So Father, this is my prayer for this incredibly wonderful church. These people that you died for, that you love, that God, you have hand-selected by your, by your will to be part of this particular unique body at this time in this place. That God, our, we would thrive. That God, we would be fig trees full of figs. That we would be lush and, and look great on the outside, but God, at the core, we would go down deep into the, into the presence of your Spirit. And that the fruit of the Spirit would be developed. And that when you look at us, you would see fruit that is pleasing to you. That God, we wouldn't let the, the things of the world, the prosperity of our country, the temptations that come along, even the temptations of the church world, to divert us from the path of walking honestly before you, simply before you, and just allowing you to, to challenge us every day, to hear your well done, good and faithful servant, and then also to hear what there's this thing, Mark, I want to deal with.